Mark is the most amazing guide and photographer, and he and his wife, Chloe, set well, up... Let me give you a bit of uh, my family history in Africa. Yeah. Um, so my, um, my parents moved out to Zambia, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s, and they were working on a copper mine there. My mum was a nurse, so she was running the hospital, and my dad was an accountant, uh, so he was, uh, he was working on the mines there. And they did like three years, finished up their contract, and uh, then they thought it would be a really cool idea to buy an old VW and drive around Africa for a year. So they uh, are very adventurous, you know, and um, bought this old VW, and off they went, and they drove through every single country in Africa, through the Sahara Desert, through countries that don't exist anymore, and uh, drove the car all the way back to the UK after a year. And um, my dad was looking for a job, and uh, I thought, well, yeah, he was looking for, I think he was doing, he was auditing some company, and there was a, a sign on the board, uh, financial controller needed in Tanzania on a tea plantation in the Southern Highlands. So they just were like, yeah, we've got to do this. And so they moved out there to the Southern Highlands, back, like uh, early 70s, maybe mid 70s. And, uh, yeah, started working on this tea plantation, uh, which was, is only about 100 kilometers as the crow flies from Ruaha. And, um, yeah, then I appeared, and you know, there, there wasn't much to do back in those days. So, you know, with Ruaha being so close, every weekend we'd go down to the park, and it really felt like, you know, going to this lost world, because the only way to get into the park, there was no camps in those days. And uh, there was no bridge across the Ruaha River. So you'd have to drive down onto this one-car ferry, and uh, it was very rickety. And eight guys would come down and pull you across the river. And uh, so if the river came up, you wouldn't be leaving, you know, and then you'd just go and camp wherever you wanted to. So, yeah, I'd got a real passion for, for Ruaha when I was a kid, and just the adventure, and, yeah. So, so that's why... Um, we sort of initially looked at Ruaha because obviously I've got family ties in the area with mum and dad being around. And uh, I worked there for about a year when I was about 18, just working in one of the camps, doing some guiding. And uh, then, yeah, when we got the opportunity to build our own camp, we, uh, yeah, we started looking at all the different sites that were available in Ruaha. And uh, there were about five, um, and they were only allowed to pick one of those five sites. So we went to all of them, and a lot of them didn't have a view, or they were very remote. And there's a couple of key factors you need to have a good safari camp. You know, you've got to be close to the airstrip, you've got to be close to good game viewing, and obviously a view uh, plays a big part, it, part in it as well. So we, um, yeah, we found the Akuka site. And like we, we first went up there about 10 years ago, just Chloe and me, you know, parked at the bottom, walked all the way up the hill, you know, peered through the trees, and we were like, oh, this view is amazing. But um, like, how, how, sorry. <coughs> um, how can you build a, a safari camp on top of a hill? You know, there's no water up here. So we kind of put it to the back of our minds. And then when it became a proper reality, like we're going to actually, we need to find a site. We uh, we went and spoke to the authorities, and we were like, mind if we like find water first, just to know if there is actually it's a viable thing. And um, they were like, yeah, sure, you can dig a borehole. So we, um, yeah, so we found water, and then um, that was uh, that was the sort of green light for the project, really. What an incredible story! Um, I love that about your parents um, in the VW, just driving. I mean, that was that yeah. must have been such a magical time. Um, in yeah, Africa. They, uh, they've got some great stories as well about that. Like, I think they were camping in a small little A-frame tent somewhere in Botswana. 
and uh, in the middle of the night they heard some lions and they were sort of probably about 30 meters from the car and um it happened to be some two male lion lions fighting over a female and at some point during the the, the, um, the fight the one of the lions knocked into the tent knocked it down and then scratched my mum through the tent so they were laying there for about about an hour just until the lions disappeared like with this clen- uh, collapsed tent on top of them um and then as soon as they thought they weren't there then they ran to the car and just spent the rest of the night in the car oh my god <laughs> i mean i mean I, I i'm sure that they're i've got to, i probably should do a podcast with them at some point um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, incredible stories. I mean, you just you, you sadly don't hear that many of those kind of tales anymore of like true, true wilderness exploration. Um, yeah. But Ruaha is as close as you can get, I think, at the moment to being it, it's as as remote as it gets in Africa. I I feel. Um, yeah, it's one of the special. last true wildernesses out there, you know. With um, so you've got Ruaha, which is about twenty-two thousand square kilometers, and then you've got um, the hunting area to the north called Rungwa, which is the same size as Ruaha. So the whole ecosystem, um, if you combine it as one ecosystem, is about forty thousand square kilometers of uninterrupted wilderness, which is pretty, it's pretty amazing, actually absolutely incredible and if you if you put that in context with say the serengeti which is about sixteen thousand square kilometers and with hundreds of camps and then you look at yeah, ruaha yeah. with with what 10 camps or something then it gives you perspective camps and that's it yeah insane. insane yeah there's there's a lot of areas in ruaha that i still haven't been to you know it's uh lots of hidden gems uh so like, like this yeah so a lot, lot i want to do and exploring in ruaha you know they've got the highland plateaus a place called usunco viola where uh, the, all the vegetation is different and that's like two thousand meters above sea level then you've got the the you know the usangu uh, wetlands as well where you can do boating and um yeah and then the, the miombo highlands as well so yeah lots of cool area. stuff to see because um, Chevy and I were saying that we think it needs, it could do with a, you know, it could do with a little bit more tourism just to try and protect it. And there's so much space for people to kind of have their own operations and still keep it wild and, and. Um, oh, definitely, yeah. Not step And actually, you know, having, having uh, safari camps uh, in these uh, wilderness areas actually helps the wildlife a lot because it, um, it, you know, the if, if there were to be poachers around, they're going to avoid any safari camps as much as possible because they don't want to be seen or whatever. So, yeah, having camps in definitely helps the wildlife. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing to think there's places in Roja that you haven't been. Um, oh, yeah. I, I find that absolutely incredible, and it just shows shows how wild it is. Um, so we've touched on the fact that the spot, so the spot you picked for Roja is unbelievable, but you as you were saying it wasn't you know it's not the easiest place to build a safari camp so you presumably you did find water yeah that's a whole story in itself um that took so you to find well to build a camp you have to find water that's part of the uh, part of the deal and uh you know you can uh, you can use a uh, the local water council they'll send a, a delegate down to come and actually test and they do these little tests and they say yeah there's water at this depth or whatever it is and they pick six sites and then um then you then you uh, hire a company a drilling company they come down and they do water divining 
which um, yeah, on, on the six uh, on the six sites, and then they pick which they think is the best. And uh, yeah, so it took about a week. And when they drill, because obviously we're on top of a on top of a escarpment, on top of the highest hill in the escarpment. So yeah, we're obviously we're all, we're all on top of the highest hill on top of this um, escarpment edge. And uh, when they drill, every they drill down ten meters, and then they take a sample and take it out and put put it down so you can see what what they're drilling through. So the first forty meters is uh, rock and sand. Where, where our water is, where our borehole is. And then for another 210 meters, it's just solid rock all the way down through this mountain. So we've got actually one of the deepest boreholes in the whole country because we have to drill through the hill. And actually when they drill down to 200 meters, because you know you pay per meter, um, there was nothing. There was just a slightly wet soil. And um, yeah, so then they were like, do you want to drill another 50 meters or do you want to move to another site? So we're like, okay, let's let's drill another 50 meters. So we drilled down another 50 meters, and still there was nothing. So we were like, we were quite quite depressed about depressed about the whole thing. And uh, and everyone went to bed, went to sleep, woke up in the morning. We went down, and they flushed the hole with air, and this huge uh, fountain of water sprayed up, and that was a that was a very good day. Oh my God! How amazing. So you got the water, and then presumably was it full steam ahead? Right, this is our spot. We're we're good to go. Exactly. So we had a, a very good uh, designer builder called Neil Rocher. Um, so as soon as we got permission, he, he turned up with um, a small team of uh, labourers to, to start basically digging the trenches. And it's all rock and sand, so it's quite tough going, you know. And um, when he arrived in the country, I was like, well, where's your building team? He's like, oh, don't worry about that, don't worry about that. And we just went to the local village, and he got the local head of the village to get a whole bunch of um, young lads together and he just picked about eight of them and said right you guys come with me and then they just started digging yeah so from start to finish on the project from the moment we arrived on site it was about 10 months until we had our first guests which is pretty it was pretty quick that is quick especially once people have seen the site they will find that very quick um because yeah, yeah. You, you realize it just can't have been easy so what was what was i mean i'm sure you've got lots of stories from the build but were, were there any particular moments where it was particularly difficult yeah i mean so one of the one of the big ones that stands out was um about probably about two weeks before we had our first guests we were filling up the swimming pool with uh, water and uh, the water stopped flowing from the pump. So we were like, okay, it's a bit of a problem. So we, uh, we went down to the site and this borehole while well, our pump is 250 meters down. And well, actually at that time it was about 150 meters in the hole. So we pulled it out, checked it, it seemed okay. Um, we sort of, uh, we took it all apart, put it back together, put it back down the hole, turned it on and no water. So we're like, okay, um, maybe we need a new pump. So we went down, pulled the pump out, and it's quite a big job pulling out uh, a pipe that long with a pump at the bottom full of water. And um, pulled it out, went to Darslam, got a new pump, put it on, put it back in the hole, uh, turned it on, and still no water. And by this stage, we've got about probably nine days until the first guests arrive. And if you don't have any water, then... You know, you can't do any of the washing up, you can't, no showers, nothing. So it's a bit, it's a big problem. So then we were like, well, maybe the, um, maybe just the, the pump's just not strong enough to pump all the water to the, to the top. 
So we were like, let's get a, another generator, an inline pump, and put that halfway up the hill and uh, see if that works. So we've got all that stuff in. And by the stage, we've got about five days until the guests are arriving. So we're like getting quite nervous. And then we turn it on, still no water. We're like, oh, this is, a, this is getting quite bad. So anyway, we pulled it out one more time, the pump, just to have a look at it. And this is sort of two days before the guests arrive. And we were like, okay. And one of the guys noticed this tiny little cut in the pipe, like about a centimeter long. And that was a problem. So we just cut out the pipe, replaced it, stuck it back in, and it worked. I mean... And so we met... We... <laughs> what a panic. What a panic, yeah. So we, uh, we filled up the swimming pool, and I was like, yes, this is brilliant. And the water was crystal clear. And uh, I haven't had too much experience in... Um, sort of uh, keeping pools. So I was like, well, I better chuck some chlorine in. So chuck some chlorine in, went to sleep, woke up in the morning and the pool was dark brown, dark brown. <laughs> oh, and I was no. like, what? <laughs> so anyway, the first guest to arrive, arrived to this dark brown pool, even though it was crystal clear the day before. So <laughs> what had uh, happened to it? Took us a while to, well, there's a, the water's very mineral rich. So there's a lot of iron in it. And I didn't get the pH level just right, so I shocked the pool, and it brought all the iron out of solution. So yeah, went went dark brown. <laughs> anyway, these are all little things you you learn as you go, you know. So we've we've managed to sort that problem out, and yeah. Yeah, and part of the pleasure of being one of the first guests into a camp is you you kind of you're there for all the kind of small hitches that go on which actually make you feel like part of the family and you're experiencing it's very rare to be able to go into a newly built safari camp so hopefully they were understanding uh yeah they, they, they were fine about it yeah i know it, it was it was absolutely fine but um yeah i couldn't really couldn't yeah i, I didn't know what happened so i didn't know really what to say i was like it, it was it was clear yesterday <laughs> anyway they, they, they were very understanding well, you did so well because usually, as we know, when safari camps say they're going to open, say in July, usually they open in kind of September or October. So, I think I mean, yeah, I mean, we actually also we built during an El Nino year, so probably about was it uh, four months into the build, we had uh, um, one of the biggest rains in fifty years in the park. Oh God! So all the roads became inaccessible, and we had this one patch of road that was probably about three or four kilometers, which no car could pass. Well, one of our trucks bringing in supplies got stuck in the mud and uh, the grader came out to, uh, to pull it out, but then the grader got stuck. And um, in the process to get the grader out, they used their blade and they just pulled themselves out and they dug these two huge trenches in the road and those, those filled up with water and then we were basically done. No supplies in or out, unless it was carried on your head. I think there's a picture of me somewhere carrying a carrying a toilet on my head for like five kilometres through the through the mud, you know. Oh my lord! I mean, it's just that's that's why I wanted to ask you about all this stuff because I knew there would be some good good stories of the build. <laughs> um, well, incredible! Yeah, it is yeah. stunning. The lodge is stunning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and so the other great thing about Ikuka is obviously the people and the people always make a camp feel, you know, atmospheric and warm and friendly. Do you have a method for kind of building such a good team of, of staff? It's not only your guides who are amazing, but it's it's everyone, the waiters, everyone is just so lovely and obviously very happy. Like, how do you go about building yeah. that kind of team? 
you know, when we, when we started off, it was uh, a lot of uh, word of mouth, so um, getting recommendations from friends. Obviously, we've, we've been working in the industry for, well, we had been working in this industry for about 15 years prior to us uh, starting the project. So we knew, we had a good network of guides we knew and waiters and all that kind of stuff. And um, obviously, you don't want to poach staff from other lodges because, uh, then you, you create a bad relationship with the other camps. So you have to find people who are not currently employed at the time. And, um, yeah, and then we just, we, you know, you you often hear stories about certain um, people, like, through the industry and how good they are. And we just got lucky. We don't want to poach staff from other camps that are already operating. So it's, it is quite difficult when, you, when you're starting off and you want to jump in at a certain level because if you... If you bring in a lot of staff for um, the sort of the front of house areas, they've got to have experience already. You know that you you can't just train them up in a week. You know, so yeah. Luckily, because of the network of friends we had through the industry and connections to different staff that we'd worked with, we were able to get a pretty good team to start with. And then obviously it evolves over time. You know, some people decide they want to come back, like Festo, who you mentioned um, before, who was your guide. Uh, he was working in another camp, and then his his heart was sorry. He was working in another game reserve, and his heart it was just in Raha, so he really wanted to come back to Raha. And um, we we'd heard about him before, so we managed to get him on the team eventually. Festo is my favourite guide I've ever met in Tanzania yeah. ever. I'm actually obsessed with him. Um, yeah. He's so good. I tried to get him to do my do the podcast, but he he's very like humble. He doesn't have an ego, and he. He just, yeah. you know, he, it was not necessary for him to promote himself on a podcast. Um, but I just wanted to chat to him more. And so I totally understood why, you know, his, his head is in, in the safari game, not recording a silly podcast with me. Um, but he is, yeah. he is just so lovely, just and, and an amazing guide, amazing, amazing guide, um, as, as were all the others that I met in the camp. Um, what is your most memorable wildlife sighting like in Roha? Obviously, this is going to be difficult for you having spent so much time there and you've probably seen yeah. everything under the sun. Is there anything that sticks out? Uh, yeah, I've got, I've got a few uh, memorable sightings. One of them um, was, uh, was a pod of hippos that got struck by a lightning bolt. What? Which... Yeah, so we were we were driving along the the river's edge, and um, there was this huge storm coming across the river, like to, uh, moving at a, at a rapid pace. You know, lots of rain, and we were driving along uh, next to a pod of hippos on our on our right. And uh, as the storm was about to hit us, this lightning bolt just came down and struck right in the middle of this pod of hippos, and. Um, the rain then hit us pretty quickly and the visibility was very poor, but yeah, I mean, it, it must have, uh, it definitely would have given some headache or killed a few, I would imagine, but yeah, I've never seen anything quite like that. Oh my God. So you couldn't see whether they all kind of, a few immediately died. Was Did they kind of all yeah. scatter? I mean, it must have been like panic. We, we couldn't see because of the storm, but yeah, the lightning bolt definitely went directly into the middle of them and that must, uh, yeah. That is must have killed a couple of them. Yeah. That's proper scary mother nature type of stuff that. Yeah. I've um also seen a crocodile riding on the back of a hippo before. 
were, we were we were watching a pot of hippos, and you know, it was, it was there wasn't much water in this little pool, but there was lots of hippos and lots of crocodiles, sort of in amongst them. And uh, one of the, one of the hippos stood up and started walking, and we were like, "What's that? You know, what, what, what's is something on his back?" And we had, had a good look through the binos, and there's this crocodile just draped over the top of this hippo. And just just basically sitting there chilling out, and the hippo was just walking along. You know, probably didn't even know the crocodile was on his back. Oh my god, that's the kind of thing if you saw a picture that you'd think it had been made up, been photoshopped. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god. Um, obviously, with uh, what, what else have we seen? Um, like the I've, I've seen a ground pangolin. Uh, I think it's uh, twice now. Amazing. And the first time I saw one was actually in the in the jaws of a lion. Oh. So these uh, private lions had found the pangolin, and um, they were trying to bite through his uh, scales, but couldn't. You know, the scales are so strong, and uh, they were sort of rolling around like a football. And this poor pangolin was having the worst day of his life. You know, but um, like eventually the lions got bored and just left him alone, and off, 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 off he uh, off he went. Oh well, that's that is lucky. Um... It would be a very sad day to see a pangolin get dispatched. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, what else have I seen? Uh, um, sorry, two seconds. Didn't write one, put one down. Um, yeah, I've, I've also seen um, a, a fish eagle catch a baby crocodile and um, fly off with it, which was quite, it was quite exciting. God, so the, uh, the fish eagle flew down and it grabbed the crocodile like, with its talons through its uh, top and lower jaw. Because obviously it knew what it was doing and it knew that I think it could, could, could bite or cause a lot of damage to it. But yeah, grabbed this uh, thing by the jaw and then just flew off with this uh, young crocodile. Oh my god, that's the kind of thing that if the fish eagles kind of, if it starts doing that, it's a learned behaviour, isn't it? And it probably would do that more frequently once it got the hang of it. It sounds like it had already done oh, yeah. it before. No, that was quite, quite, quite an amazing sighting. Yeah, incredible. I mean, I've, 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 I've encountered wild dogs on uh, on walking safaris before um, that have uh, killed, killed an impala in front of us, you know. That was quite good. Actually, well, actually, the way it transpired was we were watching a, a herd of impala and uh, we were just on this walk and just out of the blue, this wild dog just came down and took down this impala right in front of us. Oh, my God. That is the stuff of dreams. Um, <laughs> that is uh, just to be on foot and then see something. The thing is, with, in the bush, it's always just the best things are the unexpected things, like, like the things you've just been mentioning. You know, you would never imagine that in your wildest dreams. Um and that is, yeah, how, how extraordinary. Um, is there another part of Africa or the world which is high on your list of places to visit at the moment? You know, I think uh, one place I've, I've always wanted to go to would be the Ethiopian Highlands. Oh, yeah? Um, to trek through there. I, I, I've, you know, I've never been to Ethiopia, but the, the pictures of the, of the hills and the mountains there just look absolutely stunning and then obviously you have the uh, giladas or the uh, well, well another name for those the bleeding heart monkeys yeah and uh, i'm quite a keen photographer so i'd love to go up and spend some time taking some pictures of those uh those old, old world baboons 
Um, obviously, they have the simian fox as well. Yeah. Otherwise known as the Ethiopian wolf. So that would be very high on my list of uh, things to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Actually, I'd love to see an Ethiopian wolf. That would be insane. Um, you are an amazing photographer. Um, I will put a link to your photography in the in the bio of this podcast because you're yeah you're being very humble, but you are an incredible photographer. Um, Thank you very much. So no, and um, and it seemed like a lot of your guides were actually um, have you been kind of helping them because they all seemed quite keen and they take quite good pictures as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely try and help them out. I mean, to be honest, a lot of them already knew how to take pictures uh, before they came to the camp. So, um, but you know, it, it definitely, um, you know, a lot of the guests, actually, even the guides will be helping the guests come who, who come out and they've just bought a new camera and they don't know how to use it. So the guides will be helping them how to use them, which um, adds another sort of uh, dimension to it. Yeah, no, absolutely it does. And, you know, most people now who come to Africa are very keen to take photographs and, as you say, not always kind of as ready as they should be to take the photographs they want to take. So it helps a lot if your guide can can kind of point you in the right direction and at least get you in the right position yeah, and things like that. Yeah, the, the position of the vehicle is obviously very important with the, with the right light and getting the good spots at the sightings. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that can definitely add to your, your overall experience amazing um mark thank you so much that was so interesting that was perfect thank you, it's been an absolute pleasure